Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and if I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you, faith family. I know that many of you expected to see Donnie up here. Sorry to disappoint. Donnie and Shay were able to get away uh, this past Thursday. They took a vacation. Of course, they have nearly adult, all adult kids now, so they can just leave them wherever they are and not really worry about them. So they're able to just uh, jet off and do whatever they desire, so we let them go. So be in prayer for them. They're traveling back today. Uh, but the good news is I've heard from a lot of people. Uh, most of the time when I preach, apparently they're not in here, so... I, pre I preach in empty rooms most of the time, it seems like. I have no idea how that happens, but uh, I'm glad that those folks who always say, hey, I never heard you preach, I get to hear you today. This morning, we're going to continue our series uh, through our, our, our reading or our study through Philippians. Uh, contagious joy is our theme, and as we go through this again, we're looking at what it looks like for us as believers to have that contagious joy. Paul's letter to the Philippians is full of this. In fact, he talks about rejoicing so much, it's almost a theme, almost where we came up with the idea of contagious joy. We're not super smart, we just kind of go with what the Bible says and work it from there. So we're going to be talking about joy today. Hopefully today we'll be addressing a couple questions. What is Christianity and what is Christian life all about? You may ask, yeah, I know what that's all about, I've heard it before, I've seen it. But many of us, we say Christian, we say Christianity. But do we even really know what we're talking about? Do we know the essence of what Christianity is? Hopefully today we'll be able to dive into that and, and understand it better. And, and the reason I am going to go from that direction is several years ago, I was actually, it's actually before Donnie was a pastor here, I was leading youth. Uh, I was doing a sermon or a, a, a teaching on a Wednesday night, and I got done. I thought I did a really good job, as I tend to think I do. Uh, Mary Ann, uh, she was one of the people who helped lay, uh, lay lead that. So she was over there, and I talked to her a little bit. And, and she looked at me and says, boy, you said Christian a lot in that. I was like, well, yeah, I was talking about Christians a lot. She goes, do you think those students really know what Christian is? And I said, what do you mean, Mary Ann? She goes, think of how many people use the word Christian today and what they associate it with. I remember going, huh, Mary Ann, I've never thought about that. I had to sit back and think, and I said, you know, we, we really use Christian, that term, a lot for a lot of things that it is not intended to be used for. I mean, we, we see the label Christian associated with businesses, a Christian business, Christian politicians, Christian schools, Christian movies, Christian music. But what constitutes a Christian, or what constitutes Christianity? What marks the life of Christian life? So today, as we walk through Paul's letter, we're going to see his life reflect and teach us exactly what it is to be a Christian, to live that out. Uh, you see those bumper stickers all around that talk about fishing life or southern life or cheer life or whatever it is. Today we're going to talk about, talk about Christian life, what it is for us to live lives as Christians. So let's recall real quick, for those of you who have not been with us the whole time through Philippians, uh, recall that Paul is currently in prison. We might not get that idea, just looking at the idea of joy through this whole book, but Paul is in prison. In fact, he's in prison in Rome, awaiting a sentence. He has already been found guilty of preaching the gospel. Now he's waiting for his sentence. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is under Emperor Nero. He is a very kind and gracious, benevolent emperor towards Christians, and I say that very sarcastically. Paul may even face being burned as a candle in Nero's gardens. He doesn't know. His life is on the line. He does not know the outcome of his sentencing, but we, we find him writing this letter. 
He's probably chained to some guards here. And we also know that Timothy is with him. Timothy is there with him. Timothy's not in prison. In fact, if we, if we look at some of the historical things, Timothy might actually be the one writing this letter as Paul is speaking this uh, inspired word to him. Uh, so, for, so for us, we know Timothy's there and Paul is there. And we hear this joyful letter being written in the midst of persecution. Now, I don't know if you caught the very first part here. In verse 18, we start off with, what then? A great question, what then? Now, (laughs) it's always nice to preach after Donnie, hoping that he covered what you want him to cover in the previous verses and didn't step on too much of the things that you want to talk about because I don't want to re-preach the last three weeks. But I probably will, if you all bear with me. (laughs) Don't, Don't laugh. There's your humor, Aubrey. You can laugh at that. But what then? What is Paul talking about when he says, what then? Well, let's look back for the past couple of verses. We've got to backtrack just a little bit here. Remember what was going on in Philippi. You see, in the previous verses, Paul was, asking, was being asked to address a situation that's been going on with some of the pastors around there. Uh, some of the pastors were, were, were preaching. Uh, they're pulpit pastors. They're leading churches. But they were preaching out of envy and strife. There's also some that are doing it out of love. But I think the address here was more or less, hey, Paul, what are you going to do with those pastors who are preaching the gospel out of envy and strife? The ones who are using your name to create a pulpit for themselves. If you look at a, uh, some uh, non-biblical historical text, there's belief from historians at this time that those very pastors who are rising up against Paul and saying, hey, look, is he really a pastor of the gospel? He's in prison right now. Would God put a pastor of his in prison? The Romans at the time found that those pastors speaking against Paul that was encouragement to them. In fact, they, the historians would write that that was empowering them to eventually lead Paul to his own death. So the strife in the church could be a cause for one of the reasons that Rome actually rose up against Paul. But we see that there's some jealousy. We see there's strife. And it's probably hard for us to imagine that today. Probably not. I mean, we've all been in church life for long enough to understand that envy and strife and things like this come our way. The church today's full of jealousy, full of strife. I mean, there's jealousy within this faith family. We know this. We're broken people. Jealousy between brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters who should love each other, but there's envy and strife. Brothers and sisters in Christ, but yet we can't even get out of our own way, and we find, hey, I want to tear them down so I can build myself up. I mean, we want to believe that we can just hold hands and sing one in the bond of love, and we're okay with that, but that'd be a face, a facade, a mask we would wear. We know that we're broken. The church is like that. So what should our attitude be when we encounter those people who are envious and strife? By the way, by the way, what about ourselves? The first thing we do is we repent and believe if it is us. But Paul, for us in these verses, he asked that question, what then? What am I to do? Paul, we're sending you this letter. Hey, we have this issue. What are you going to do about this? Well, I don't know if Paul's response is exactly what they wanted to hear. But Paul's example is the model for us. It's displayed here, full display for us. It's to rejoice. Paul says this, what then? Only, verse 18 says this, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Let's remember again those, those pastors who were preaching at an envy and strife, they were still proclaiming Christ as Savior and the only way to salvation, but they're doing it for their own gains. So Paul's response, praise God. I'm glad that the gospel is being proclaimed. And in this, I will rejoice. In the middle of prison, Paul was going to rejoice. Pretty amazing, Paul. Paul knew the importance and the power of the gospel and was assured that whether from false motives or true motives, Christ being proclaimed results in his rejoicing. It's not about Paul. It never was about Paul. By the way, if it wasn't about Paul, about Paul, it's not about you, and it's not about me. So long as God is being glorified, Paul does not concern himself with how he fares or what kind of motives the preachers are using as long as God is being proclaimed, the gospel is being shared, even if it is at Paul's expense. Now, we're going to take a little side journey here because Paul doesn't immediately resolve this issue of church strife. He actually doesn't even join into that at all. He says, hey, here's my response. I'm going to have joy in this. 
But we're going to take just a second, because some people might not be here for those other sermons, but he does address this again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. I did ask this morning if Rick or Nick were preaching this. They said no. I asked Donnie. He had no answer, so I assume he's preaching it, so I'm going to steal some of his points. If we look at Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. We see here Paul resolves this issue of envy and strife later on. He says three things in there. First, think less of yourself. Think less of yourself. This is hard to do sometimes because we're very selfish people. But he tells us, hey, think less of yourselves. See who you truly are through the lens of who God sees who you are. God sees us as his people, as his children, as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the lens in which we should see ourselves. Not as better than anyone. Paul doesn't see himself as better than anyone else. Neither should we. We see ourselves as brothers and sisters saved by the same grace that saved Paul that saves us here today. First, we think less of ourselves. Second, we need to have a better opinion of others, especially the troublemakers, especially those who are causing the strife and envy. We, we need to have a better opinion of them. Instead of throwing them away, casting them aside, we need to draw them into repentance and belief, show them the good news of Jesus. Uh, this will happen when God makes us aware of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. We should ask for God to work in their life. God, bring the Holy Spirit upon them. Be convicted of their, of their sins, of their strife, and their envy. Think more of them. And thirdly, we're to have the mind of Christ. We're to develop this mind of Christ through fellowship with him. Now, that's a whole other sermon, and I've been told I don't have as much time as I thought I had, so I cannot preach that today. So I'm going to let Donnie preach that in a couple weeks. So we're going to get back to our text today. At the end of verse 18, Paul says something again. He says, after I'm going to rejoice, yes, I'm going to rejoice again. I will rejoice Paul, again, is going to rejoice. This is a, refute, a future rejoicing. You see, Paul, again, is waiting for his sentencing. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know his life is going to be forfeit or if he's going to live another day. But he said, you know what? In the future, I'm going to rejoice again. I will rejoice. He will be rejoicing. It doesn't really matter what the outcome is. It doesn't matter if I continue to be chained in prison here. I'm going to continue to rejoice. My mind is set. My heart is, is, is equipped. In the future, I will be rejoicing. I mean, that's pretty exciting for us, isn't it? To know today that as we sit here in Pensacola, as we sit here at Pine Summit Baptist Church, that tomorrow we can have our minds and, set, our minds and hearts set on rejoicing tomorrow, that no matter what the outcome of today is, no matter what tomorrow brings, we can be set in our hearts and minds to be rejoicing. I'm not sure about you, but that's good news to me. That even if tomorrow is not as exciting as I thought it was going to be, I can still set my mind to be rejoicing in the future. In fact, the ESV reads this, yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Remember, this could be Timothy scribing this for Paul. Imagine Timothy writing this, young Timothy writing about the uh, troubles, the strife, and the envy of the pastors. And you know, if it were you, maybe it's just me, maybe it's you and me, if we heard about pastors causing conflict like this, we would say, yeah, let's take that down. Let's, man, let's, let's give it to them. Let's, let's start a Facebook campaign and tell everyone how bad these people are and make everyone know that these people are causing strife and envy. And I could imagine Timothy writing on, yeah, strife and envy, here we go. Paul, what you can do about it? What then, Paul? Rejoice. Paul, did you just say rejoice? Yes, Timothy, I said I will rejoice. He had to say it again, almost as if Timothy was in disbelief, almost as if we today would be in disbelief that in the midst of strife and envy, we rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. Rejoice, Paul, today, tomorrow. Paul, you're in prison. Rejoice. Your life is in peril. Rejoice. You're troubled by these preachers. You write in Galatians about false prophets. You talk about these things at length, but but as long as Christ is being proclaimed, you, Paul, are going to rejoice. You're burdened for the care of the church here in Philippi, and you're going to rejoice. See, Paul sees beyond his current circumstances. He sees beyond himself. He sees beyond his imprisonment. He sees beyond the strife and the envy. And he sees 
the goodness of God, and he will rejoice. He knew that being in prison was a good thing. And by the way, he even knew that being in prison and dying would be a good thing because Christ would be proclaimed. Christ was being preached, and the result of that is never going to be evil. Think about that, church. As long as Christ is proclaimed, we can rejoice. It doesn't matter if it's done well. It doesn't matter if it's done uh, poorly. If Christ is proclaimed, if the gospel is being told, we rejoice. We rejoice. Somehow all the burdens, all the trials, all the pains, and all the sufferings in Paul's life are being overruled by the glory of God. That's the Spirit of God dwelling in Paul. That very Spirit that indwelt Paul that allowed him to overcome those things and to enjoy and to rejoice in the midst of his imprisonment is the same Spirit that indwells us as believers today, that empowers us in 2022 to rejoice in our circumstances. Paul's joy was not hampered by his status in life. In fact, if anyone had a reason to be unhappy, to be dissatisfied with their current position, it was Paul. What had he done to deserve this? What had he done to be imprisoned? He proclaimed the good news of his father, and for that he was being imprisoned, punished, maybe even put to death. But in Paul's spiritual maturity, we see that even in this, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Are your circumstances sapping your joy? Is the world around you feeling like it's just falling in around you and joy seems so fleeting? How can I rejoice when I look at the world around me, when we see the brokenness next door, when I see the brokenness in my own home, when I see the brokenness in my own life? How can I rejoice? Do you know what tomorrow brings and you already dread it? How do we rejoice? Faith family, we're going to find out today how Paul rejoiced. You know, if we depend upon our own feelings for joy, if we depend upon our own situation for joy, this could be one roller coaster ride that might make you sick. I love roller coasters, but I can only imagine the ups and downs of that one. Today I feel good, tomorrow I don't. Today there's an easy life, tomorrow there's not. But today, faith family, we know that as Paul rejoiced in his hardship, so can we. So why is, so, why is Paul so joyful in his current situation? Why, do he, why does he have so much joy? Why? Most worldviews would see the imprisonment, would see the enmity that, that the people have against him, would see the, 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 the death that he's staring down, and say, this is the time to worry, this is the time to panic, this is the time to be distressed. Now's the time, Paul, for you to worry and cry and, and worry about spilt, uh, spilt milk because this, this is some dire situations. Most worldviews would say that. Yeah, there's no, there's no good thing coming out of this, Paul. You were at your end. This is over. But not Paul. Not Paul. What's so different about our Christian worldview that causes joy in a sea of sorrows? Well, I'm glad you asked. I know everyone was thinking it. I know everyone was asking it quietly because we're not that charismatic. We're not going to shout out. But you know what? I'm going to answer the question for you. Why can Paul have so much joy in his current situation? Well, let's look at verse 19 and 20. It says this, For I know. What does Paul know? For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but with all boldness Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. We have that transition word again, that word for. It connects everything above it. Remember, Donnie was preaching about it last week. For, it transitions. Everything I just said, this is what I mean. For that that's happened, I'm going to make this statement. Yes, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Paul's rejoicing is rooted in his knowledge of God. And that he will be delivered by God's means. I know is what he says. For I know. It's that perfect tense. It's not a I knew or I will know. Paul knows now. He knows now. He knew yesterday and he will know tomorrow. I know and I know for sure and I know indeed. What does he know for sure? What does he know indeed? This, that his imprisonment, the torture, 
the chains, the jealous preachers, all these things, the fact that Christ is being proclaimed, he knew that his circumstances, that they would turn out for his deliverance, all these things he knew were for God's glory. What a testimony for us today to know that the situation in Paul's life was not about him, but it was for God's glory. It was for God's glory. He knew that in this he was going to be delivered, and that deliverance was going to be for God's glory. Now, we would expect that deliverance to be something good. Paul's uses, Paul uses the word here, soteria, which can be translated literally salvation for my circumstances. Paul knew that his prison was temporary. Paul knew that his, his pain was temporary. Paul knew that the suffering was temporary. He was going to be delivered. He knew that through this, Christ was going to be glorified through his deliverance. Paul believed that his ter- cur- current distress was only temporary. I will be delivered. Now, for us today, we want to be delivered from our circumstances. But listen to this. How is Paul going to be delivered? Either life, y'all can read it with me, life or what? Death. Either my life or my death, God will be glorified. And in this, I rejoice. He was expectant of this. I will rejoice. I will be delivered. Maybe this trial will result in my release from prison. Maybe it will result in my death. Maybe I'll go to heaven to be with my Jesus. Ultimately, I will be delivered. And in this, I rejoice. Look what he's rejoicing through also. So not only is he rejoicing in his suffering, not only is he rejoicing in his deliverance, it's in the means in which he will be rejoicing. You see, most of us will see a prisoner sentenced, knowing he may face death, and see them rejoicing and go, okay, that guy is probably in the wrong prison. He needs to go to some psychiatric ward. He is crazy. There's no joy in prison. There's no joy in his situation. But Paul had cause for his joy. The means of his joy is said right there in the verses also. He says this, for I know that it will turn out, and in verse 20, my bad, through, my, my, for my deliverance, through your prayers and the provision of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. It wasn't a pie in the sky, I hope I'm delivered, I hope God does something for me, but it was expected. He had a cause for his joy. Paul expected his brothers and sisters to be praying for him. You notice what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't say, please pray for me in my imprisonment. He doesn't doesn't say, please pray for God to be proclaimed in my imprisonment. He has expected his brothers and sisters in Christ to already be praying for him. His his rejoicing is rooted in the prayer of the saints, knowing that they're already praying for him. Charles Spurgeon took one uh, week out of the year, one morning out of the year, to address his congregation about prayer for their leaders. And I'm going to read what he said because he is a much more eloquent speaker than I am by far. But Spurgeon said this about the prayer of the saints' brethren. Our work is solemnly uh, monumentous, involving weal or woe to thousands. We treat the souls for God on eternal business, and our word is either a savior of life unto death or of death unto death. A very heavy responsibility rests upon us, and it will be no small mercy if at the last we be found clear of the blood of all men. As officers in Christ's army, we are the special mark of the enmity of men and of devils. They watch for our halting and labor to take us by the heels. Our sacred calling involves us in temptations from which you are exempt. Above all, it often draws us away from our personal enjoyment of truth into a ministerial and official consideration of it. We meet with many naughty cases, and our wits are at a, at a nonplus. We observe very, spat, very sad backsliding, and our hearts are wounded. We see millions perishing, and our spirits sink. We wish to profit you by our preaching. We desire to be blessed to your children. We long to be useful both to the saints and the sinners. Therefore, dear friends, intercede for us with God. Miserable men as we are, if we miss the aid of your prayers, but happy we are if we live in your supplication. Charles Spurgeon called out his his faith family to pray for those who are leading. Paul was expecting of those who were his brothers and sisters for them to daily be praying for him. His rejoicing wasn't just in hope that someone would be praying. His rejoicing was rooted in the fact that his brothers and sisters were 
praying. Today, I hope that our joy can be rooted in the fact that we are praying for one another, that we are praying for our pastors, and we're praying for the salvation of those around us. But it wasn't only prayer that Paul was rooting his joy in. It was the provision of the Holy Spirit or the supply of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who provides the power and the peace that Paul needs to remain steadfast in this difficult time. It's the Spirit that helps him in the midst of all this to live with earnest hope and expectation and joy. Paul says this in Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We've heard that many times, have we not, church? That is a bumper sticker that we have put on. That's a tattoo people have across their backs. That is something we have stood by. But can we say that? Can we rejoice in our, in our lives, knowing that the goodness of God is, is being worked through us, that our suffering may be for the glory of God? Paul also knew that regardless of the outcome of his imprisonment, through his suffering, through his trials, trials, through his life, that Christ always will be exalted in his life. We see this at the end of verse 20. It says this, that Christ even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life and by death. Right before Paul makes this statement, before he says that, he says this, that, in, that I will not be put to shame, that God will be glorified in my body as always. You see, the shame here that Paul talks about is a disappointment. We can translate it as disappointment. Paul will not be disappointed. In his imprisonment, in his torture, in his pain, in his suffering, in the, in the wickedness he sees in some preachers, Paul would not be disappointed in his cir- current circumstances. Paul would not be disappointed in his choice to live for Christ. Paul knew that Christ would not just be magnified, Paul's life would, that Christ would not just be magnified in his life, but Paul, Paul would knew that God would be magnified in his death. And Paul would not be disappointed in that. Is, that. is that not a good thing to hear about, that Paul's disappointment would not come from the life he lived? If you're a believer today, do you know that the Father wants to magnify his Son in you so that you will not be disappointed? Paul was confident in this, so confident in the midst of his turmoil. Again, we see him rejoicing. We see his bold confidence. God, you will be glorified in my imprisonment. Paul was so, so satisfied in the perfect will of God that it was in his life or his death that he would not be dissatisfied in. I would be satisfied in you, God. I will not be disappointed. I will accept whatever you give me. His joy was not dependent on his circumstances. You see, when life is good and living is easy, we often say with great boldness, all things work together for those who love God. It's those easy times in life when we say that with confidence and boldness. It's, it's, it's easy when we have everything we need. It's easy and plenty. It's easy for us most of the time. But what about at the grave? Is it easy then? It's not so easy when we face utter disappointment and pain. It's not so easy when life bears down on us with a vengeance. When plans that we have made erode before us, it's not easy to say all things work together for those who love God. When when friends that you have trusted for a long time drive that proverbial dagger in your back, it's hard to say all things work together for God's goodness. When comfort is fleeting, when God's blessings seem so far away, do we cry out with boldness and confidence then, church, saying all things work together for the good of those who love God? It's in these moments, it's in these seasons of life that we as believers have confidence in our God. We must learn to trust Him in those moments, trust in His goodness, trust the very way Paul was trusting in him now. How can we do this? How can we, when life seems to be thrown as the proverbial curveball, still have joy, still have peace, still rejoice? Here it is. First, we need to daily submit to the authority of God in our lives. See, Paul's response was not, what can I do for myself? How can I get out of prison? How can I convince myself to get out of this? His daily response was, I will submit to the authority of God. God, you have me in prison. And by the way, God, you have me in prison? Let me evangelize these prison guards. You don't believe me? If you flip to the very end of Philippians, Philippians 4.22, I want you to say, hear this. Paul is thanking everybody. He says, listen, all the saints that greet you. Hey, say hey to all the saints that greet you, especially those who are in Caesar's household. 
how do you think the gospel is being spread? You think those guards who are guarding here go to, the ca- go to the palace and guard there, and they start talking about Paul, and boy, we have this guy in prison. He's about to face death, but he will not stop, stop talking about this guy from, from Bethlehem, this Jesus of Nazareth, talking about I need to be saved. Man, this guy is just crazy. It's all he ever talks about. When you go guard him, you're going to hear all about Jesus. You see, his daily submitting was not, I'm going to submit to be miserable in my circumstances. He was submitting to God's authority in his life, saying, God, you have me here. You're the sovereign God of the universe. I'm in prison because you chose for me to be in prison here. The second thing we could do is we can daily spend time in God's word. So for us to have boldness in the, in the, in the down times of life, to say that all things work together for those who know God, is for us to know God better to go to his very revealed word. You know, we don't call this God's word for nothing. I ask the youth many times when I teach, hey, why do we call this God's word? Why do we call it God's word, church? This is not a hard one. Y'all can answer. Why do we call it God's word? Well, it's because it's God's word. <laughs> We're not trying to play games with this. This is the inspired word of God. The very God of the universe that said, let there be, gave us a revelation of who he is in his word. It is his word. We need to spend time in his word knowing who he is. When a Christian says, oh, I thought Christian life was going to be easy, I thought it was going to be all cakes and lollipops, I take you back to the word and say, hey, did God say that in his word? Did he say for li- to live for me is going to be just, I mean, easy street, health, wealth, and prosperity from this day forward? No, he did not. But for us, we need to spend time in the Word knowing the very God who has called us. Third, we need to take up our cross daily and follow him. He's already won the victory for us. We are already victors. We have not lost the battle. We have already won the battle. So we take up our cross and we walk the road of victory. We walk the road of victory because God has won it for us. We can be rejoicing in everyday situations because Christ is being exalted in us. Christ has been exalted in us. A pastor wrote this, a change for the worst in health, job, finances, or personal relationships, or other important areas of life can easily cause a believer to question the Lord, his sovereign wisdom, and his gracious provision. When that happens, joy is one of the first casualties. Believers are especially vulnerable when such things happen suddenly, taking them off guard. Their response is often one of anger, doubt, distrust, fear, self-pity, ingratitude, or complaining. In such cases and events that are, not as, that are not sinful in themselves, they lead for sinful responses from us and steal our joy. For us, when we find ourselves in those areas of life, when the valleys seem to never be ending, we rejoice because God is victorious in our valleys. We rejoice because we know tomorrow is God's day already, and he has won it. We rejoice because God has saved us from our sins, from our wallowing. I asked my kids this, and they're both in here. I'm not going to ask them to say it because they might be sleeping. Oh, they're not sleeping good. It's always dangerous to put your kids on the spot. Brandon, you want to answer a question for me? What do you deserve? Did you all hear them? Brandon, what do you deserve? Say it loud. Death. And why do I say that to you? Brandon, why do I say that to you? Why do I ask that question? Because you're a sinner, and we deserve death. You see, so many times we don't realize what we've actually deserved. Thank you, Brandon, by the way. Thank you, Brandon. You know, the thing is that when we realize what we absolutely deserve, and we don't get that on a daily basis, I mean, I'm looking at a group of people today who do not deserve, or do get what they deserve. We're all breathing, aren't we? We deserve death for rebelling against a holy, righteous God. But here we are enjoying air conditioning when it's 85 degrees out. Man, what a day to rejoice. You see, when we look at the goodness of God, we've got to remember what we actually deserve. I can see Paul now talking to Timothy. Timothy, if I die, that's what I deserved anyway. I'm just, I'm just getting an extra day to proclaim the good news of Christ. You see, for us, when we find ourselves in pity and sorrow and doubting God, We repent and believe and realize and and remember that God has been good to us, that we didn't get what we deserved. We may not see it now, 
We may not see it now. We may be swallowed up in all the legitimate sorrow and all the legitimate pain and all the legitimate suffering we can handle. We may not even be rejoicing right now in our current situation in life. But the day is coming, faith family, when we will stand face to face with our Savior. And we will look back from eternity future and we will look back and confess that God knew what he was doing in our life. And as Paul said in verse 20, that I will not be put to shame, that I will not be disappointed in anything. We will look back from eternity future, and we will not be, be disappointed in one thing that God has put us through in our life. Whether it be pain or suffering or joys, we will not be disappointed. But we will know that Christ was exalted in our life, and we will stand victorious. What a day that will be, church. But can I tell you something? We don't have to wait for that day. Paul was rejoicing that day. We don't have to wait to the day we meet Christ to rejoice. We don't have to wait to eternity future to rejoice. We don't even have to wait till then to be satisfied in Christ. We can do it today. Today, we may have set our eyes on things on the world around us. We may see all the turmoil in our life. We expect them to bring joy. We even expect the good things to bring joy. If I could just get this. It's those what ifs, the only ifs. If I could just get this, only if this would happen this way, if I could just get this promotion, if my kids would just stop doing that, if my wife would just do this, if my husband would just do this, if only, if only, if only I will have joy. The if onlys in life will not bring joy, faith family. Believer, they are not intended to bring us joy. They're intended to bring us to the cross. And in Christ, we find joy. So your eyes should be fixed on Jesus today. We make the gospel our goal. And if we set our eyes on Christ, we will not be disappointed. And in that, we will find joy in Christ and the work he is doing not only in us, but through us in the world around us. But Paul's not done. You would think that's a good enough answer for Timothy? Timothy, yes, there's strife, there's envy, and I will rejoice. Even in my circumstances, I will rejoice. But Paul is not done. He continues to talk, and there's a, a verse here in verse 21. Almost the, the verse we can go to, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be, what does it mean when someone says Christianity? I would take him back to this verse here. Paul says this, what a weighty verse we have here. For, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What a weighty verse, a summation of life for a Christian. This verse says it all for us. In life and in death, it's all about Christ. I was sharing with uh, some of the elders when I was trying to prepare for this sermon. If one of them were to say this, hey, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, I'm like, yeah, cool, got it. But when Paul says this, we have this life to look back on. We have this testimony from the road of Damascus to the death that he faces. We see this life that he lived. And we know that when he says to live as Christ, we look at his life and go, man, this man meant it. And when he said to die as game, man, he meant it. There's some weight to this. But in our bumper sticker theology, we kind of just throw it off. Say, yeah, let's put it on a car. It sounds good. I'll live as Christ, die as game. But do we really even know what that means? This verse does answer our question, what is Christianity? Now, I know we all know the answer to this. And I'd say, hey, let's say it all together, but I'm not. But let's talk about that for a second. What is Christianity? See, Christianity is a person. Christianity is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is rightly associated with Christianity finds its center in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, y'all have heard this quote if you've been in here under Donnie's preaching and Nick's preaching and Rick's preaching from John Stott, but you're going to hear it again. The person and work of Christ are the foundational rock upon which the Christian religion is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There's practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. For those of you not familiar with math terminology and circumference, 
I got a great illustration for you. Now, I know you've seen this water bottle up here. For those who are not as close to the uh, stage as others, we'll talk about the water bottle in a second. But we don't have to imagine a lot about needing water. We live in Florida. It's about to be our hot, it's not even our hot season yet. It's about to be our hot season. But those of you who have been outside in the past week, maybe you're cutting the grass, maybe working in the garden, maybe went to a sporting event, maybe just walked to your car. We know what heat can do to a body. And all of a sudden, you find yourself incredibly thirsty. Have you ever been there? And I just need some water. I just need some I, I've been outside all day. The sun has drained me. I just need some water. And it's great just to grab a bottle of water and drink that water to refresh our bodies. Now, those of you who are close, as you can see this bottle of water here. Morgan, can you see this bottle of water? You notice anything different about this bottle of water? It's empty. There's nothing in it. Imagine if you would, you're out working in the yard, playing sports, a couple hours, you're sweating up a storm. You go, man, I'm thirsty. Hey, Jeremy, do you have some water? Got you a water bottle right here. Also to you. You grab it, you open it up, and there's nothing but air inside. How satisfying is that to your body? You see, so much about Christianity, we, we wrap it up on the outside look. We say, well, you've got to go to church, you've got to read your Bible, you've got to do X, Y, and Z, you've got to pray, you've got to do this way, you've got to do that way. We show everyone the outside of the water bottle, but we never give them the essence of what's inside of it. How good is that water bottle if there's no water inside of it? It's no good. How good is Christianity without Christ? It's no good. It's worse. You're absolutely right, brother. It's worse than an empty water bottle. You see, so many times in our lives, we go out and we serve people. It's good to serve people. It's good to give them food. It's good to give them shelter. It's good to go out and bless people. But if all we do is ever give them food and water and shelter and never give them Christ, we have failed as believers. What they need more than food is Jesus. What they need more than shelter is Jesus. See, we've given them the bottle, but we haven't given them the water inside. I remember, uh, well, I remember the Jesus going to the well with the lady. Hey, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. Well, she pointed to the well. There's a well. Doesn't that satisfy? No, it's what's in the well that satisfies. It's the water. So many people only see the outside, the circumference of Christianity, and they make many false conclusions about it. In fact, the peripherals is sometimes all we ever give them. We give them the look of Christianity. They identify Christianity with what they see as Christian character. And since many of us, myself included, display a character far from the character of Christ, they get a very false impression of what Christianity is all about. They see the water bottle and think, oh, I know what's inside of that. I know what that's all about. They get all the do's and the don'ts. They get the rights and the wrongs from us. Uh, maybe even some people venture further into Christianity. They even go as far as to join a congregation, join an organization. Uh, they, they see the visible church. They see that Christianity maybe is the gathering of the church together, not just the do's and the don'ts and the, the rituals. Maybe it's just the people gathered together. This is, this is what Christianity is all about. They view Christianity as proper participation. If I do the right things in the congregation, I'm all about Christianity. I'm saved. If they do the right things in the proper order, then poof, Christian. This view is rampant in the church today and the world that we live in, and it may be the cause for some of the church's weaknesses in our society. You see, people, some people even go further than that. They see the do's and the don'ts. They even participate. They even go so far as to participate in the creeds that the church confesses. We're going to do a creed after this. They even say those things with boldness. I do find value in the creeds, but they are fall sh far short of Christianity. See, Christianity is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing about the Christian life can be rightfully understood unless the person has a personal faith in Christ and a personal relationship in Him. So for us to live as Christ, we've got to know some things. Today, I think if you sit under my preaching, I think you want to know what does it mean to live as Christ. What did Paul mean when he said to live as Christ? Well, get it. I'm glad you asked. I, I hear you asking. I got it. Paul, in his early ministry, when he uh, was speaking to the Galatians, he writes in Galatians 2.20. Um, we compare this to Philippians 1.21 here. It says this in Galatians 2.20. You can actually turn with me. Uh, Galatians 2.20. Just back a couple pages. 
if I can get there. Another verse that's very familiar says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then Paul later in his ministry would pen this, for, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, for me to live as Christ. This is something that was a habit of him. Paul's not merely saying that the aim of Christian life was to be Christ-like. He says the aim of Christian life itself was Christ. That's the aim of Christian life. Jesus was his breath. Jesus was his soul. Jesus was his heart. Jesus was the life that he lived. It was all about Jesus. He professed to live for Christ. How can he live for another object without committing spiritual adultery? If his life was all about Christ, to live for something else would be a lie to proclaim my life is about Christ. How about us sitting here today? Can we say to live is Christ? I live for Christ. Can you profess that you live for Christ with boldness that Paul did? I mean, Paul wrote it, and we read it today. For me to live is Christ. I find myself falling way short of that many times in my life. I don't live for Christ. But it doesn't stop me. I repent and believe. So how can we how can we live lives that are all about Christ? How can we say, my life is Christ? Again, I'm glad you asked. First, we must realize that we must have faith in Christ. We must be saved. Romans 8, 8 tells us this, those in the flesh cannot please God. To live is Christ. Salvation is necessary. Many of you may be sitting here today saying, man, I can't live for Christ. Well, let me ask you this. Are you saved? Is Christ your Savior? Is he your all in all? Have you professed him as Savior and Lord of your life? You must acknowledge that you can do nothing to save yourself, that you deserve hell because you sin. You deserve hell because you have rebelled against God rather than live for him. That Christ is the only means in which salvation has been provided. It's through him and through his life and death that we know salvation. It's receiving of Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. This is the good news of the gospel. Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? Earlier we talked about the circumference of Christianity. And many people have that false sense of, hey, you know what, I get the rules, I see it. I, I belong to a church. I have the D's and the Dow's all down. I, I'm even in King James Version. I got it all. I participate in activities. I'm here when the doors are open. Unfortunately, they also trust in these things to save them. Is your faith in church function, proper recitation, the these and the thous, the, sac the sacraments? Are you just trying to improve yourself? None of these things, church, none of these things were ever intended to reconcile you to God. None of these things were ever intended to save you. Put them aside. Be done with them. Let the truth of the gospel remove them from you. Repent and be saved. Christianity is faith in Christ and Christ alone. So first, we must be saved. Second, we must have fellowship with Christ. The belief that faith in Christ is impersonal, impersonal is false. For someone to say, yeah, I've been saved, but never spend time with God, never spend time with his people, is an oxymoron. It doesn't happen that way. Faith in Christ should lead us to a personal fellowship with him, to diving into his word. We talked about it earlier, to diving into his word, to being in there, searching out who he is, and knowing him better. We find God revealed in his word. I remember, again, when I was leading youth, a question came up, hey, how can I know what God said? And I, I kind of snickered at the time. I said, oh, well, you know, I never thought about that. Some people might not understand, hey, how do I know what God has said to me? How do I know what God has said about my life? And I was able to sit down and say, well, let me tell you the easy answer. God gave us his Bible to tell us what he said. And the, the, the young student was like, oh, yeah, what's the hard answer? God gave us his Bible to know what he said. They're both easy and difficult. The easy part is to know that the word of God is his word. The difficult part for us is to open it up and read it. But for us, if we're going to live a life that is Christ, we must know him. We must be with him. 
A.W. Tozer says that the modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of this world. We as Christians are in real danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We have almost forgotten that God is a person and as such can be cultivated as a person can. We come to the word expecting this to just to be the be-all, end-all, instead of coming in to know God, to know who he is, to know more about him, to build the relationship we have. 1 John 1, 3 and 4 says this, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with our Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that your joy may be made complete. See, our fellowship is not just with one another, but it's with God also. To think that to be saved is having a personal God who has saved us on the cross 2,000 plus years ago and be done with it all misses the point of living as Christ. It's a personal relationship with him. It's daily knowing more about him. It's daily spending time in his doctrine, in his word. In fact, spending time in his word should draw us into relationship with him. It shouldn't just be, yeah, I memorized these things, I'm good to go. It should break our hearts sometimes when we see ourselves reflected in the Word to know what wretched souls we truly are and how good our Father has been to us. We should, we should strive to be in the Word and find joy being in the Word. It should not be a, a drudge, a, a, a chore for us to be in the Word. I, I know I've sat many classes here and many preaching uh, sermons here and, and talked to many men and many women and many times I've heard, this, and by the way, I'm going to take this off the table of this excuse. Hey, why haven't, you read, why haven't you been in the Word this week? Can I tell you the number one excuse and probably the only excuse I ever heard? I don't like to read. Fantastic. I don't care. God gave us His Word written out for us. I think He wanted us to read a little bit. So let me tell you this, Faith family. If you're a member of Pine Summit Baptist Church, a covenant member with us, that is not an excuse for you. Period. If you call yourself a believer... If you profess Christ as your Savior, being in God's Word, knowing more about Him, I don't like to read is not an excuse. That reveals a lot about our heart, though, doesn't it? It reveals a lot about who we are. You see, not only is, not only is a fellowship with Christ something we cultivate, but it also brings about joy in our life. Joy. You see, at the very end of uh, 1 John 1.4, it says this, that our fellowship with God why? It's going to be cultivated so that our joy may be made complete. You see, fellowship with God brings about joy in our life. Christian, today if you're lacking joy, it may be that you're lacking fellowship with God. God is not withholding his joy. God is not holding back saying, no, I'm not going to give it to you. In fact, he's the exact opposite. It's the Mary and Martha thing. Do you remember Mary and Martha? One of them sat at his feet, Mary. Martha went around cleaning and doing other things. Martha said, hey, why don't you get Mary to come and do these things? And what did Jesus respond? She's building, we're having fellowship here. It's good for her to be here at my feet. It's good for her to have fellowship with me. So many times we mistake Christianity with busyness. Oh, I'm doing all these things for God. I'm doing all these things for Christians. I'm doing all these things because I am a Christian. And we miss the fellowship with our Father. Do you want to know why service sometimes is joyless? You want to know why serving the community and being a, uh, a minister out there in the world is sometimes no joy? It's because we haven't gained joy from being with God. We haven't spent time with our Father. So, of course, all the things we're doing, we expect them again to bring joy. And what is the result? No joy. The last thing in here for us to live as Christ is we must follow after him. To live as Christ, we must have faith in Christ, fellowship with Jesus, and follow after him. It's the call that Jesus gave to his disciples, follow me. Follow me, just as it was for the 12 disciples, it is for us today. We must leave everything that keeps us from him and follow him. You see, Paul lived. In verse 22, it says this, it says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will be for fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. You see, Paul knew that for him to live was going to be fruitful labor following Christ every single day. We continue to proclaim the good news. We continue to follow after Christ because that's what we live for. Colossians 1, 5 through 6 says this, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you 
just as in, just as in all the world also is bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you've heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, Paul was going to continue following Christ, proclaim the good news in the ministry because the fruit that was growing in him could not be contained. The joy of God that was in him could not be contained. The gospel could not be contained. You see, I remember, I remember the day that I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, I was in Gulfport, Mississippi, about seven or eight years old. I got on my BMX, and every kid in my neighborhood knew that Jesus was Lord and Savior, and they needed to be saved. My bike was wore out that day. My legs were tired, but everyone had to hear about it. Can I confess something to you this past week? I don't think I got on my bike and went anywhere. I don't think I walked next door and told anyone. I don't think I got up too often to follow Christ in my daily walk. But Paul, the example we have, says, hey, that's not how it should be. Daily we get up, we follow Christ. How's your Christian life going? Are you living as Christ? Are you daily following after him? Are you taking up the word and knowing more about the God who saved you, fellowshipping with him? Have you even been saved? Paul doesn't stop there and just talk about life, does he? He talks about death. And i got to get moving, man. That clock goes fast back there, I tell you. Slow it down, please, Scott. Hey, life isn't life if there's nothing to live for. Death isn't death if there's nothing to die for. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This statement, death is gain, flies in the face of all conventional wisdom. Death is a loss. You're losing something. For, for Paul, for the believer, it is not loss. For an unbeliever, it absolutely is loss. In fact, it's loss. Death for them brings on judgment, a guilty verdict, eternal separation from God. For the believer, though, death is just a doorway. Death is just stepping through. Death is gain. For an unbeliever, they've experienced their heaven here on earth. For those of us in Christ, we know that the future holds something more bright. For them, their future is condemnation and suffering. They may, not say, they may not say this, but they know this in their heart, that their future is not secure, that they don't have Christ, an unbeliever is eternally separated. Death is their enemy. Their heart knows this truth. In death, they will meet their maker, and they will fear him. The good news for us today, for those of us in Christ, we do not have to fear death. Praise the Lord. We don't have to fear death. If today is the last day we draw breath, praise God. We will go to meet our Jesus. So what gain is there for a believer in death? Man, I am glad. Man, y'all are asking the right questions today. It's helping me move along real smoothly through my notes. Uh, it's helping me move real smoothly through our message today. So I'm thankful for that. Hey, you know what the first great benefit for us as believers? Freedom from evil. You know, when we die and we are present with God, there will be no more evil. We have tasted the righteousness of God, a taste of it. But when we get to heaven, when we see our Jesus, we'll have the full righteousness on display. No, no, more, no more will there be evil amongst us. We know this to be good, and we long for it. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about it in verse 23 here. He says, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That is very much better. See, Paul knew that dying would be better for him. He uses that word depart. He says depart, and, and this word is used by the Roman legions back then when they broke camp and they were marching in war. They broke camp and left everything behind. Nothing was going with them. Think about that, faith family, believer. When we break camp from this world and we die, we're leaving it all behind. Not just our possessions. We're leaving the sin. We're leaving the pain. We're leaving the suffering. We're leaving it all behind. The Roman legion, when they broke camp to depart, they never went back to it. When we break camp here, we're not coming back to it. Amen. What a joy that will be for us. What a benefit in death for us that we will no longer know evil. When we break camp from here, freedom will be forever ours. Second great benefit, we're going to be like Christ. Oh, the joy that will be. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been, uh, and it has not been appeared as yet what we will be. We know that, we, he, that he, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like Christ. We will be like him in righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? 
we would be like him in righteousness, crowned in righteousness, no longer knowing evil, but like Christ. That day is coming for us. What a day. We will be like him in knowledge. Currently, we see through the broken lens. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. That cloudy mirror, we see in part, but one day we will know in full. In knowledge, we will be like Christ. And we will be like him in love. The love we talk about, how can a God of all universes, the God of gods and king of kings, come to this earth and die for a people who will reject him, who would sin against him? One day when we are in heaven, we will know that love. What a benefit for us as believers. We will truly know the love of the Father. And last, but certainly not least, the greatest benefit for those who die in Christ. You ready for it? We will be with our Jesus. In that day, there will be no more tears. There will be no disappointment. There will be no separation. See, death always separates. The unbeliever separates the soul and spirit from God for all eternity. For the believer, it separates the soul and spirit from the body. But there is no more separation from God. Paul mentions this in verse 13. He says, convinced this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and your joy in the faith. See, he knew that he was going to stay here, but it was good for him to, to go as a dilemma for him. He was hard-pressed between the two, life and death. Paul's choice was not between Christ and no Christ in life and death. Paul's choice was between Christ by faith and Christ by sight. Christ by faith and Christ by sight. You see, for us to live as Christ, it's to live as Christ by faith. And to be with him in death, it's Christ by sight. So for us, when we say to live is Christ and to die is gain, life has its benefits and death has its benefits. We get Christ in faith and we get Christ in, real, in reality. But in both times, we get Christ. Oh, faith family, if we just only knew, as Paul knew, that to know Christ this way, to live it out, what a difference Escambia County would be. What a difference our family was be, our families would be. What a difference our neighborhoods would be. I mean, think about that. If we lived as Christ and thought death was a gain, what a difference our lives would make. See, these benefits in death especially were never intended for us to lead, to lead us away from living life. You've heard that saying, to be so heavenly focused, to be no earthly good. It's not the, not the intent here. Paul tells us again that he says death is a gain. I'm looking forward to death. But he turns back to the decision before him in our verses. He turns back to his verses. Hey, I'm hard-pressed on both sides. I want to stay to proclaim the gospel so more people can know Christ. But yet I know that when I die, I get my Jesus. I'm hard-pressed. Are you hard-pressed today? Is that even a tough decision for you? For Paul, it was a legitimate one. I want to stay and proclaim the good news of the gospel, but I also want to see my Jesus. Paul says this so that in verse 26, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. See, Christians, this is, this is how it should be for us. Our minds lifted high to contemplate the joys of heaven, but in the proper view of heaven, we turn back to the work at hand so that those who need to hear the message of the gospel can be made joyful in completeness with Christ. Can you say today that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? I sit amongst many men and women who proclaim Christ as their Lord and Savior, but do you truly live for Him? Or is your mind and heart captivated by the pleasures of this world, the desire for wealth, the desire for pleasure, the desire for comfort, entertainment? You know that you're wholly not living for Christ. Believer, today I call you to repentance and belief. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Is that not the Christian life? Is that how we're living today? But even here, there are some of us whose minds are set on so much heavenly things uh, and our hearts are set on the people around us that we're doing the work of God and the joy that is brought in that. Oh, the joy that we can say in our circumstances, I rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. I rejoice in these things. We labor today knowing that God is laboring through us for his glory. Until there are more Pauls, we will never see God's kingdom come. 
nor his will be done on earth as it will be done in heaven. Church, the call for us today is for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. So where do we go from here? If you're here today, if you never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may not and never will be able to please him. All the good works that you do, all the things that you say I'm doing for Christ are meaningless, are worthless. They will never balance a scale that's infinitely negative in your, in your column. A sin that can never be paid for by your blood can never be paid for by your works either. It cannot be done. I call you to come to the cross, repent, and believe in Jesus. Many of you may have questions about that. By the way, I don't save you. The other pastors here don't save you. Christ saves. If you have a question about that, I'll make myself available after the service today. You come find me. I'll talk to you. I'll spend time with you. Maybe you have questions about salvation. I'm here for you. Maybe today, believer, we're just lacking joy. What is in your life that's preventing you from enjoying the life that God has set before you? Your life is not by accident. Your life, your life where you're at is not just circumstances just all coming together and and hopefully this karma thing will work out for you. It's not that at all. It's the sovereign hand of God placing you exactly where he wants you to be. So for us as believers, we repent and believe and seek joy in Christ. For those of us in Christ, we come to the table this morning. We come to the table because it reminds us of what joy we can have. The blood on the cross, the empty tomb, and our king sitting on his throne. What joy we can have. If you will stand with me, before we partake of the elements, we must examine ourselves. The Bible says that we are to examine ourselves, to, to take a time to see where we need to repent and believe. If you're a visitor with us today, we, we partake in the Lord's Supper as a close communion. That is, if you're a born-again believer, baptized, and in good standing with your local faith family, we ask for you to participate with us. And how we'll do that is we'll exit out the aisles towards the walls, We'll come here, grab the cup and the bread. We'll go back to